And that was found in the first four verses. God was, um, I mean, Paul was praying to God and thanking Him for the faith that they had, the love that they had, and it was definitely authentic. So, you know, usually you see faith, hope, and love together. You see those, uh, like in 1 Thessalonians, we see that right in the first chapter. Well, this time we saw faith and love, but what about hope? We didn't see the hope yet. Um, so that's one element that uh, was missing. And so they were kind of confused. They were confused about their hope. They're confused about the second coming. They have been, uh, when you get into chapter 2, and of course we'll be dealing with uh, the whole aspect of uh, the day of the Lord and uh, the Antichrist. And uh, of course, when, when you think about the day of the Lord, you, you think about Christ coming back and judging and also um, coming back with His people. So they were confused. So this leads us to the second encouragement, which is the encouragement of promise. And uh, so God gives them a promise, and, and um, you, you pick it up in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So he starts bringing in the hope right there that they will be considered to be worthy for the kingdom of God. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. They're afflicting them right now. Remember, this is about persecution now. It's come on full out. I mean, it's it's heavy persecution. And so he says, they will be afflicted. They will be afflicted like, you're afflicted now? It's going to be much worse. And verse 7, "...and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire." Got to like that verse. And it's dealing with Christ coming back and coming back with His people. At the same time, there's going to be judgment. So uh, that kind of gets us uh, prepped for what we're dealing with tonight. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank You for who You are. We praise You. You are a great God. Mighty indeed are You. And as we look at Your Word, we know it's mighty. It certainly changes people, and we see this change in these Thessalonians. And of course, the affliction, the suffering, the tribulation came to them in a heavy way. But um, because of the faith that you gave them and the love, uh, they have hope. And we have hope because we know in the future, we know who is on the winning side. And it's your people. You are the winner. You win every battle, every time. We thank You, Lord, that we know this through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, great hope. It talks about their perseverance and their faith and amidst persecutions and afflictions in verse 4 and then says this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. God is going to judge the people who have been persecuting Christians, these Thessalonians, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So as they go through persecution, the stronger their faith becomes. The stronger their love becomes of the Lord. And of course, they need the hope. And that's why Paul is writing here. They really need encouragement of hope, don't they? Because when you go through heavy persecution, sometimes you can begin to wonder, is the Lord going to do anything? <laughs> sometimes it doesn't seem like it, right? But He always does. No matter what their circumstances, they had a secure and they had a glorious future. Whatever they thought, whatever they felt, 
um, still it didn't matter because if they're His, they are secure. So there's reward for believers and uh, one of God's purposes in, in is designing their suffering and out of that suffering, their testimony then is an indication that God is righteous okay. as He works out His great plan. Didn't you say last week that there had been uh, false teachers coming in and saying that the second coming had already happened? Right. So they're going through this affliction thinking... This is it. This is it. <laughs> oh, but but and, okay. and some of them are. Th- we missed Christ. Where's he at? Right, you know, right. we thought we were supposed to go and meet him up in the air. And so yeah, they're really confused. They're very confused. Uh, many of yeah, them. That would, that would really be. Yeah, they're feeling this. I mean, you know, it's easy for us to read this two thousand years later and say that's nice. But boy, yeah, when you, I'm glad you brought that up because that this is real. This is this is what's happening. But, I'm sorry, but it almost yeah. feels like how confused they are here is almost like how confused we are in today's society yeah. about a lot of topics. Not a bad teaching. It's like these people knew, knew the apostle, so when they were like, "This is what we've been hearing. We know that you're." Been sent. We see what you can do and what you've done. Tell us what is, is this the truth? Yeah. But today it's like people don't. They have the word, like we have the word, but they don't want to believe the word because it's not what they want it to be. It's like there's not a person running around in like Christ form or an apostle form. You know, we got preachers and you know us, but that it's almost like we're still not good enough. And yeah, we when we saw some of those videos, the the numbers are outstandingly incredible that don't even believe any of this stuff. And then then we saw the answers some of the young Christians gave, and that was disheartening, scary. Yeah, it is. So yeah, it, it, it's always a confusion in the world, but that's the beauty of having something solid that you can depend on. You know, and this word here is really it, isn't it? So one of God's purposes is that in this suffering is that their their testimony is indicating God's righteous and He will work out His great plan and He's doing it right now. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. gives a really good view of um, worthiness related to present suffering, just the Christian life and such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is a living hope. As we live, that we this is it's, it's living because it's Christ. It's our hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's that's our the very hinge of our faith, you know, the resurrection. And upon that resurrection, Christianity will either fall or it rises. And because 
the evidence is very clear that uh, he, he rose from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This is quite the reward, isn't it? This is what we look for. It's, it's, it's reserved right there, right now for us in that sense. Who are protected by the power of God. While it's being um, uh, reserved in heaven, what's happening to us? Well, we're being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's the second coming, ready to be revealed. Uh, Apocalypsis, I think, is the word there as our word is in Thessalonians here tonight. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, this explains what's happening in our life now. While we're here, Christ hasn't come back yet, but this explains what's going on. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials multicolored, multifaceted, so that the proof of your faith, the proof, you've been tested, there you have a proof, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the apocalypsis or apocalypse revelation of Jesus Christ when He comes back. And though you have not seen Him, we haven't seen Him. There's where our hope comes in. We love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, and that's what faith is, we don't see. We don't see Him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. With joy, uh, joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There is the, the the final salvation. There's the first part of salvation, then there is the sanctification or ongoing salvation, and then you know the future salvation, glorification is what that is. So that explains from the time we were born again that He caused us to be born again. Did you guys see that? Isn't that cool? To the life now that explains, okay, there's suffering, uh, but it's that you your faith would be like gold and even more than gold. And we greatly rejoice in it. This is during the time of the Thessalonians, they went through the same thing. As Peter writes to the Jews scattered all over the world at that time, here we have Paul writing to the Thessalonians and the same thing was was going on. Explains our, our lives, doesn't it? This is it. Matthew 5, 10-12. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Everybody likes Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are, right? Verse 10. Here's a blessed are. Blessed are those who have been, what? Persecuted. You're blessed. You're happy. (laughs) For the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your... Here's our word here. Reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may not have the same kind of persecution they did. We, We do go through different kinds of things. But no, we haven't had that degree of persecution. Not... Not in its uh, fullest sense, but uh, if that time comes, which it could very well, you can be blessed. 
blessed are you. But he's always pointing to reward. He says, here's what you're going through, but here's, here's what you're to do. Is this about hope? Offers great hope, doesn't it? Some give up on that hope. Said, well, God hasn't done anything for me. I'm tired. Done with it. That's sad. So, there's the hope for the believers. 2 Thessalonians 5, 1.5 and 6, For after all, it's only just, it's only righteous, it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. God will repay the wicked. One day God will turn the tables, won't He? Sometimes it doesn't look like He's really doing anything with them. Second yeah. uh, Peter says that He is patient. How many times have you seen the wicked prosper? Many. And of course, I think that is a problem that God's people have. They, they look at the unbelieving world and see them having all this fun and all the money and everything is going great for them. It seems like it's really not. But Turn to Psalm 73. This is something that we all have probably said and wonder indulged. sometimes. They're being indulged by the world though. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. You ever been there? For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, and they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations, their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people returned to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. It's been empty. It's all been in vain that I've kept a pure heart. Been obedient. I washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, the presence of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. (laughs) Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. See the hope? What happened whenever he went into the 
sanctuary of God. He started seeing things in the right way. What happens when we turn to the very Word of God? We start thinking right again. He counsels us. We start thinking about the the future glory that is to come. Whom have I have in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Where do where else would we go, right? <laughs> For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. We get to see the humanness of the of the psalm writer here. It's Asaph. And he was honest. David often is honest with God. Here's how I feel. But yet, the truth gets out. And when they start thinking upon God's things, then they get the right perspective. We've all been there. Every one of us. You can admit it or not. But we have been. And you know, we, we need to know we're, we're, we're just human. We're broken. Broken people in a really broken world. But that's okay. Because God knows how to do with the pieces, doesn't He? Habakkuk chapter 1 is along the same lines. And of course, Habakkuk was even wanting to know, you know, God, why, why, aren't, you, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you doing something even to the, to the unbelievers in Israel? And, and yet, God tells him that, hey, i got a plan. I'm going to bring on uh, the enemy and, and uh, kind of like destroy you guys. <laughs> Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He had some things to say to God. Then he realized that God had something to say. Jeremiah 12 1. Righteous are you, O Lord that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who dealt in treachery at ease? He has the same story. almost like Job is suffering. There you go. Here I am. What have I done? Well, these people, you know, you've taken everything from me, but here these people get to prosper and they're wicked. <laughs> exactly. The prosperity gospel. It's got to have problems with all of this. Just what we read in Thessalonians, just what we read here in Jeremiah, Psalms. I mean, it's just all over there. The prosperity gospel says if you believe hard enough and you believe, you claim, you know, the money, all the money you want, anything you want, you claim it, you name it, you get it. And if you don't get it, it's because. You lack faith. You're the problem. Well, you look at that and say, okay, God is love. You know, why would He why would He say I'll repay the wicked? God is a loving God. He's not going to send anybody to hell. Matter of fact, there's no hell because God is a loving God. They might say that. But also God is light. While He is love, He is light. And as He um, is light, He will shine that light in the dark places and show exactly what is there. Well, and like you were just reading, the loving thing was not the riches and the things of the world. The loving thing was 
the persecution. <clears throat> that was the loving thing. It's hard to, hard to grab a hold of that, isn't it? It's hard to appreciate that. I still, I still have difficulty with that. <laughs> yeah, because now you have nothing else to depend on but Him. <laughs> that light momentary affliction. <laughs> yeah, light momentary affliction. The test. It's only a t- the test. Yeah, how, how many times have you heard that on TV? <laughs> this has been a test. Only a test. There you go. Let's go into what we're going to do is go into verse 7 and then we'll back up to verse 6 and 8 and 9. But let's go first of all, let's go with the, the really good news. <laughs> the Lord will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory here. Um, verse, verse 7 says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to us as well. Paul is saying himself and those with him. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire. Well, we look to that, don't we? Now, he's getting, getting them ready. He's getting them pumped up. And to give his real answer, it's in chapter 2. So now he, he brings forth this hope that they already know about. 1 Thessalonians 4. He, he, they, they already knew about that before he wrote that letter. He had been there and they wanted to know all the things of the Lord and they did. You know, I mean, as, you know, he taught the whole council that he could as quick as he could. Short amount of time. So, the, the word there in verse 7 is a, a key word. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed. Revealed is... Apocalypsis, which means to unveil, to whatever's covered, to make it now uncovered. So the apocalypse, some people talk about the apocalypse. You've seen the apocalyptical movies, right? The apocalypse of, of the Apostle John, which that's what you'll see in the Catholic Bibles and some other Bibles too. The apocalypse, it's, it, it really means it's the revelation. Same thing, we use revelation. Uh, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, really. It's unveiling Him. So anyway, it's uh, it's the unveiling, it's revelation. Uh, so let's let's go back a little bit to Matthew 26. This is this is a great hope. This is always ever before us. You know, Christ coming back. Jesus said to him, "You have said it yourself." Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. High priest, right? The Son of Man. This is a quote. A quote that they would have heard, would have known. And the Son of Man, of course, we know that's really Christ, isn't it? And that's what you will see in the book of uh, Gospel of Luke, the Son of Man, over and over and over and over. He's the Son of Man there as He identifies with us humans. Because He was man, but He was God. Sitting at the right hand of power, when you're at the right hand, you're at the most powerful place you can be. And right hand uh, meant power, might, coming on the clouds of heaven. So 
Christ is saying there, you're going to see that, boy, this, this had to be like blasphemy to people when they heard such statements mentioned by Jesus. Go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Speaking of apocalypse, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. People that killed Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. He's coming with the clouds. He's coming out of the eastern sky. He's going to split the sky. My Lord Lefebvre, Bob, had a song called Crack the Sky. Sky. Right there. I like that song. I loved it. Crack the Sky. That's what He's going to do when He comes back. Everybody's going to see it. They won't miss it. Believers, unbelievers alike. Guess who's coming back with Him? Did you guys hear the thunder last night before it started raining? It was rumbling. It was rumbling real loud. Did everybody hear that? I mean, I I haven't heard it that loud before. And those flashes, just everywhere. But it really wasn't striking anywhere around us or anything. It was really kind of cool looking. It sounded a lot closer than it was. Did you all get a lot of rain here? No. It came down pretty good for a few minutes. Not really much. Pretty exciting show. The Lord, the, the Lord has a as a show every once in a while that he, you know, and we, that's nothing compared to whenever he's going to come back. A little taste. So, um, in Revelation one seven, we we read that right. Turn back to chapter nineteen, and of course, this is where he is coming back to uh, to earth here, and in verse eleven, and I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges. And we saw that word righteous back over in Second Thessalonians. Whenever he talks about his justice, his righteousness, that means he will judge. And, and you see fire, that's dealing with judgment too. And he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. What is it? <laughs> Nobody knows. Gotta wait. Can't wait. That's some pretty good hope. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Mind you, the cross. His name is called the Word of God. That's why we seek this because we're relating to Christ. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, all the sin is washed away. Totally. We're following Him on white horses. Whatever that means, that's exciting. This is the concert of the ages. (laughs) Mm. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know about that. This is the leader of all leaders. Acts chapter 1, verse 11. It is go- it's not going to be one of those things that... Um, it's kind of done in the corner. You know, a few people know about. Oh, he, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, I've predicted that Christ would come back something like eight times and they've missed every time. And they finally they just say, well, he's already come back. He came back spiritually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what is it? That preterist. The preterist view says he's already come back. Yeah, that's true. And uh, spiritually. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So we, we don't have to be confused about that, do we? It is. It is. This is it? Really? Well, the way I see it is if, if God... If the beginning of time as we know it, like history, was so miraculous and spectacular, don't you think the ending would match up? Ooh. Right. We're, in, in, we're, in, we're in between. You know? We're in the middle, so we feel like we're in the, in the, the lull. You know? Right. The, the rest before the crescendo. <laughs> we don't really see with our eyes that glory, do we? But we know it had well that creation that must have been an amazing thing. But yeah, the, the return of Christ, but we get to be a part of that one. Yeah. Wow! The grand finale, right? Yeah, yeah you talk about a fireworks display. Yeah. They also said in Acts one eleven, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? He ascended. That's you know death, burial, resurrection, and people kind of forget, and I forget sometimes the ascension. Yeah, he went. Uh, This Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. That means as He he left, they saw it. I I don't know how long it took. Probably wasn't very long. (laughs) But, you know, they're probably still staring going, wow. And saying, "Hey, you got you got things to do. You know, get at it now. You know, he told you what you are to do." <laughs> and but he's going to come back in the same manner as he went up. He will come back like that in a body and uh, to the Mount of Olives, because Zechariah chapter fourteen says that specifically that he'll come back to the Mount of Olives. That's an incredible thought. Might as well turn there just for a moment. This is a freebie, okay? Oh, you want, you're not going yeah. to test us on this one, right? Yeah, right. Zechariah? Zechariah 14, talking about the day of the Lord in the first few verses, and in verse 4, in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's the very same place where He left. That's the very same place where He prayed so much. And the night before he, he, His crucifixion, where He was arrested... Which is in front of Jerusalem, on the east, the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west, a very large valley. 
Half the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains. His people, his chosen people there at that time, he will uh, give them refuge. Anyway, that's second coming right there um, to this earth. So they're going to split the mountain, and Jerusalem is going to go one way, and the rest of the land is going to go the other way. Yeah, well, he's what he's doing there, he's kind of making a, a, a dividing point. Uh-huh. Uh, matter of fact, as you say that, if you look in verse 8, that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. So living water will yeah. separate it? Like a... Well, you know the Dead Sea? Mm-hmm. The Dead Sea isn't going to be dead anymore. It's going to come alive. Because look, half of them toward the Eastern Sea which would be like the uh, the Dead Sea, and the other half toward the Western Sea. What's that? That's the Mediterranean Sea. So the two are going to mix together. Yeah. Of course, you have an amazing earthquake happening. Of course, there was an earthquake whenever he was crucified, and he uses earthquakes a lot. That gets people's attention, doesn't it? Uh, other things are going to be going on too. Uh, it will be uh, in summer as well as in winter. Anyway, that's a great text to go on, but we'll get back to our Thessalonians. Did we stray from where we're supposed to be? No? This is, uh, this is the apocalypse, and uh, he, he mentions this all throughout Thessalonians, almost every chapter about the coming of Christ. Paul was really big on that idea, the second coming. It's a good topic, isn't it? It's our great hope. Uh, he'll be accompanied by His mighty angels in flaming fire. That's a symbol of judgment. His angels coming. Uh, and a lot of the language that's being used here in Second Thessalonians is the same kind of language that you see in the Old Testament. You know, the flaming fire, symbol of judgment. Uh, theophanies, uh, that's where... Uh, it's, it's like... God makes an appearance. Of course, how He makes an appearance is the pre-incarnate Christ before he, in the Old Testament. Before He um, was born in, in a body, there were times where He appeared as a man for a short time. And uh, that's, a, that's an appearance of, of God, appearance of Christ. Uh, so anyway, this I think shows quite the deity of Christ here. Uh, coming back and being revealed. Mighty angels, flaming fire. Let's go back to verse 6 now. This is dealing with um, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, He will deal out eternal punishment. We know that it's reward for us, but it's punishment for the ones who do not trust in Him. And, of course, there have been a, quite a few people in the Christian realm who have kind of given up the idea of the eternal punishment of hell. And uh, John Stott being one who I've always been impressed by his writings and wrote a book called The Glory of Christ and many other books that are just tremendous. But uh, he just couldn't see how God could have people burn in hell for eternity. So he reasoned that away. And we can't reason that away. It's there. It's a subject that we don't like to think about, but it's a subject that's throughout Scripture and we happen to be in that now. 
But whenever he does that, he always balances it too and he shows, but for the righteous ones, here's what you have. Mm. What it should do is make such an impact on us that hell is real. Hell um, is something that we need to tell others that exist and that all people are going to hell unless they put their trust in Christ. So that message has to be there. Ray Comfort impresses hell upon people, on the law. We we used him uh, one <coughs> evening here, and then Todd Friel uh, many times witnesses in the same way. He has to bring out, well, here's hell. This is real. And he brings a reality to the, that they're sinners. And this is their just judgment. Nobody likes to think of that. They would like to put light on it. Well, I think I'm going to heaven. But it may not be based upon Christ. So, um, what we're going to... Oh, yeah. I <laughs> use that. All the chocolate for eternity. Whatever. <laughs> oh, you chocolate lovers. Oh, Frida's, that didn't impress her at all. You're not a chocolate lover at all. I'm not so sure what happened there, Frida, but... Yeah, he doesn't care for chocolate. Oh, there's two of them. What's that one belief in obliteration? Annihilationism? Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, teach that. But Seventh-day Adventists teach that. Really? Mm -hmm. Seventh-day Adventists. They're they're borderline Christians. Right. Yeah. And you know, they will say they believe in Christ and I and I'm not calling them a cult. Walter Martin wrote a book called Kingdom of the Cults. And he put all the cults down that were obvious. And then he came and wrote an appendix in that book, and it was about the Seventh day Adventist. It's a good place to put it because it's like, a, what is this, kind of like a purgatory or something for him? We're not quite sure how they fit, so we'll throw you in the bag. What he was saying, there are Christians within that church, even though they have some false teaching. Ellen G. White is, was considered their prophetess. And uh, of course, she had revelation from God. There are some who don't follow her teachings, and they try to uh, try to live Christian life. They say they're they're uh, they're saved by the blood of Christ, and some of the things that we would, they're definitely not reformed in their thinking at all. Uh, but I couldn't say every Seventh Day Adventist is going to hell. Uh, but why would I say that? Yeah, as far as they're concerned, they're they really not one. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, back to chocolate. Well, I was thinking about, um, you know, God is so kind, you know, sure, we don't like to hear about hell and all that because it sounds really awful, but that's really a kindness. It's like when the Israelites were going to the promised land, he told them, you know, if you do all this stuff I'm telling you to, Everything's going to be really great, and you're going in the promised land. It's going to be awesome. If you don't, then this is what's going to happen. <laughs> the blessing and, and the curse. Yeah. Then all these nations are going to come, and they're going to put you into slavery, and it's all going to be horrible, and 
You know, all you gotta do is what I tell you. <laughs> Just be faithful. But they didn't want to hear that either. I mean, that was sort of like a hellish thing. You know, they didn't want to hear about all that bad stuff. That's right. They were positive thinkers in that in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And he opened up the ground a couple times. Oh, swallow them. Yeah. Yeah. Swallowed them up. Human heart is willfully rebellious. Loves to be rebellious. Willingly, it does that. There's free will. That's what free will does. It'd be a lot easier Rebels. to do that kind of stuff if he wouldn't warn us like this. Right. Yes. If he didn't put conviction in right. the Holy Spirit, there be, you know, we know when we're doing wrong because you know, the Spirit's like, stop doing that. Well, and then it wants us to, and then we want to, um, we we have a heart for the lost. You know, you think of family. Everybody probably has family members or close or or maybe distant, but yet they they don't know Christ. And you put that idea of hell, and it, it it's very bitter a thought. And they don't like you. Especially if you talk about hell, they want to hear that. But maybe they do. And so therefore, it is a burden that's put on us. It's great that God is sovereign, but yet there's a burden for the lost because of that. And I think you know it works. There's so many different reasons for it, but the saving blessings that flow from God, you know, as we were looking to the Thessalonians here, God is a God of sovereign election. And we know that we, are, we enjoy that of knowing you know, that He's brought us into the family and we didn't deserve it. But we also know that Jesus said, few there be that find it. The way is narrow, right? And uh, it's not popular. There's going to be sheep as well as goats. Many are called, but few are chosen. So God's decree is absolutely exhaustive in that uh, when you think of the doctrine of predestination, Predetermination. He predetermined before there was any creation. It not only extends to his decision to elect some to salvation, it also extends to the ones who are not elect. Um, and he leaves them to destruction. So now we're on the topic of reprobation, and for the last ten minutes here of our study tonight, we'll we'll deal with reprobation. We hear that term. You guys have heard of reprobates, or reprobation, and it sounds harsh, and I guess really it is, and it was meant to be. And so we say, well, boy, that is a that's a rough side of God that's really hard to hard to swallow sometimes. Just as God has determined eternal destiny of those sinners who will eventually be saved, He determined that, He's also determined the destiny of the sinners who will eventually be lost. This is a difficult doctrine. The statement of the doctrine is that the decree of reprobation is the free and sovereign choice of God. This was made when? In eternity past. To pass over certain individuals choosing not to set His saving love on many. 
but choosing to put His saving love and His mercy on others. He determines to punish the ones who do not trust in Him for their sins, and that magnifies His justice. But this can wrongfully be misunderstood and people can take this doctrine and go with it way too far. What we've just said is troubling enough. Um, it teaches that God's actions, there's, there's an equal ultimacy. And this is, this is not, not what we believe. Okay? We believe in an unequal ultimacy. You can say, What's, what, what do you mean? An equal ultimacy is this. It teaches that God's actions in election and reprobation are perfectly symmetrical. This means God is just as active in working unbelief in the heart of the reprobate as He is working faith in the ones who believe Him. Exactly. That's how far they take it. There's no, there's no sin in God. The, the verse that God does not lead people in temptation, right? Then He would be wicked, in which He's not. Right. And we don't That's really need God's help. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, it's like I don't, God, God can just do it, and I can do all the wrong stuff all by myself. What you guys just said is absolutely right, and what you what you did, what you just said is what? What'd you say? I, I don't need God to help me do the wrong thing. That's the whole point. <laughs> yeah, because we're already yeah. sinners yeah. Oh, yeah. deserving of the worst wrath of God, and this is what people don't get. They say, well, why would God... I can't believe in election because why would God you know, just choose what, whoever He wants and, and leave the other ones like that? That doesn't sound like God. And to me, that's, that's when I would say, see, so you must not be chosen. You must get what you want. Don't worry about it. You know? You're not going to worry about it anyway, so why worry about it now? Why would God save anybody? Because that's that's the question. Why would he save me? There's no reason in my own self that he that I should be saved. I can give all the answers. You know, I don't want to go there. You know, and there's something good about me. And no, no. Um, you know, it pictures God deciding to work sin and unbelief in the reprobate in order to be justified in consigning them to eternal punishment. The thing is, the problem is that they're already sinners. They are in sin, and that's exactly where they like to be. So there is the other thought of this, and guess what? This is where we would believe this unequal ultimacy with regard to election and reprobation. That, that's like this. God does indeed decree both salvation of some and damnation of others. There's a necessary asymmetry on this particular thought. The other one was symmetrical. He works in the believers and he works in the unbelievers. And then he can say, aha, see? You know, but in this case, that is not it. And if we look in Romans 9, 22 and 23, and of course, all of Romans 9 explains all of this. And of course, we've done that many times. We don't have to do that here, but what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. 
Wow. You could spend an eternity thinking on those thoughts. Before, like from eternity, before anyone had been created, God conceived of, He contemplated all people in light of their fall that Adam had. All are in Adam. And the fall there shows that all creatures were sinful. So He sees it in that light. That's trying to bring, I guess, a human thinking into God. You know, because He's eternal. We can't even explain eternal, you know, and He's not wrapped up in time at all. Um, but in the case of the elect, what it is is that everybody is on their way to hell as Spurgeon claimed it. And I think is a very good way to uh, at least get a, a, a picture of what's happening. We're all on a train or we're all just marching right on into the abyss and God comes in and intervenes and pulls people out that He so desires to do. And uh, of course, um, He leaves other ones in the state of sinfulness. They're already in that. But he leaves them in that, or he passes over them. When we did the um, the confession study, uh, we see that in the Westminster Confession they use the term "passed over them." He passed over people. He didn't choose them out. Uh, and the, so that's where the idea comes in. Well, why did he choose anybody out? He didn't have to but to make known His glory and His grace and His mercy, how would it ever be known if He, if, if he didn't judge sin, if He didn't judge others, we would never know that kind of grace, mercy, or how powerful He is in doing that. So it's another way of knowing who God is. It's something that He uh, teaches. Um, Sometimes there's there can be response. Much of the time there's not, but we still have that message. Very good, Bob. Oh, I was just uh, along with what you were saying earlier. There, it's the you know the clay. Can the clay say to the potter? Can we? Can we even ask God anything? Right. You know, do we have a right to ask why? That's having a right view of God. How big that is. We can we like to put our yeah. We like to put ourselves almost up there, close to him, somewhere. You know, because well, he gave us a mind, and we think, well, we're using our mind to, you know, to think, and sometimes our thinking goes askew and gets gets a little attitude with it. And <laughs> exactly. So, 
Exactly. Then he goes, you know, who do you think you are, old man? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, what you you guys are talking about there, on neither ground can God ever be charged with unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in Thessalonians here, what did it say? Um, That He is just to repay with affliction the very ones who afflict you. He's, and He is just and righteous to do it. And who are they to say about it at all? They can say well, all they want, but <laughs> that doesn't make it true. Um, the vindication of this doctrine, it's uh, called the justification of God. God is, and of course, we, we spent a, uh, I think a Tuesday night, I think we started out our whole study that we had that went on into the video sessions and such. Um with that thought, it was dealing with the justification of God and that He's right in doing that. Uh, Calvin said it's a difficult doctrine. And when you think of this, you, you think about John Calvin, a lot of people do, and he said this, that you have to be very careful. He called it a decretum horrible, a fearful decree. A fearful decree. That's how Calvin looked at it. People would think, well, you know, he Calvin is the one that came up with this idea. Uh, thank God, it was there long before John Calvin was around. What we're talking about is double predestination, folks. That's a term that people really cringe when you're talking about that. But this is these are biblical things, and uh, God is just. And of course, what what you just came up with there, Bob, just explains that all and. Talking about the potter and the clay, the Romans nine, and um, it's the biblical biblical doctrine of, of election, and uh, it does mean then what about the the non-elect? Well, he didn't choose them, but at the same time we don't know who they are. We can't peel back a shirt where it says E for elect. <laughs> so therefore, we go and preach that because there's a hell awaiting, and who knows? God may use that to bring people to Him. Um, but you know, and and I like that, uh, Avell, when you said that the more he we see how he judges, the more magnificent is his glory. Yeah. It far outweighs, you know, sin, doesn't it? And and even the judgment of sin, his glory is is, is amazing. And the greater is his love to his people. Then when we understand that, boy. You know, for him to love us like, like he does. He loved us when he was angry, because we were disobedient, and now we're somewhat obedient. <laughs> and he didn't love us. He does. You know, he doesn't love us any less when we're disobedient. He still loves us the the perfect way, but all the I way think through. We it. can receive his blessings now. Amazing. Well, we'll we'll stop there tonight, and uh, quite a. Quite a topic that reprobation is. I know it's tough, it's hard, but we, we know that if you believe the Bible, you have to believe it. And uh, we'll get uh, get back into that and the uh, the rewards of uh, of God's people as He repays affliction. Uh, matter of fact, He's still revealed from heaven. We get to share His glory. Hey, Nandor, would you like to lead us in prayer? Thank you guys tonight.
I'm just thinking about so many things tonight and uh, just about your grace and how you've uh, chosen to share it with uh, your, us <laughs> as people that uh, are undeserving undeserving sinners, Lord, that you died for. And, uh, we know in your word that it says that you died for us, yet when we were sinners. And just, uh, I want to thank you, Lord, and give you praise for saving us and for choosing us and picking us out, Lord, to share because this is what we were made for mm -hmm. to, uh, to worship you and to behold you and to, to live life to the fullest and uh, you are life and uh, thank you Lord for sharing sharing that with us and, uh, I cannot wait Lord till you come back sing to you and be with you and uh, worship with all your people that have been throughout history, those who have died for you, Lord, and those who are dying for you now. And I pray that you give us the strength to live day by day in this life, Lord, so that when you come back, not be ashamed, but be home, feel home with you. And, uh, thank you, Lord, for tonight and for your salvation. I pray, Lord, that we remember you in our walk. that when we come to church and when we come to Bible study that we are reminded of who we are and not what the world and what people tell us that we are but that we are reminded of what who you say we are that we're in Christ and we're loved and this world is not our home and we don't need it satisfaction, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that you satisfy us. Glory be to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.